Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Jeff Marple, the Director of Digital Transformation Strategy at Kiesel Propulsion Labs, a digital transformation company serving corporate legal departments, where he helps law departments of the Fortune 500 become better versions of themselves through the intelligent use of technology. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, Douglas. How are you doing today? Doing well, doing well. Glad to have you on. It's been a long time coming and happy that we're here. Yeah, same here. I'm uh, I'm real pleased and honored to be on, on your show. So to get started, let's talk a little bit about how you got your start. Well, every year that's a longer and longer story. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I started, I guess, as a professional 21 years ago. I started as a customer service representative for an externally facing software product that was owned by Liberty Mutual. And I started by resetting passwords, answering phones, resetting passwords. I was burning software to disk and mailing it to people. This was in the year 2000. And um, from my Windows 95 machine. And um, I, I did that. I worked in that organization within Liberty Mutual for 14 years, ended up running the, the product planning and development wing of that organization. So uh, doing all the software development uh, around what our new features and functionality was going to be, as well as supporting the, the application and the platform. Moved out of that into a claims innovation role for a few years. I was the first uh, innovation manager within our commercial insurance claims organization. Spent a little while flying drones over roofs and over disaster and catastrophe areas, trying to understand whether or not those could be a helpful tool for our adjusters in, in those types of situations and keep people from falling off roofs. That was an interesting time. as before you were allowed to fly drones legally in the United States for commercial use. So we were figuring all that out, trying to figure out what the regulations should be. That was an interesting time. I did some work as well with infrared cameras at that time, trying to understand whether or not you could use those to detect moisture and walls, et cetera, et cetera. So I did a lot of hardware work. I went from software, sort of a hardware. I did a little bit of software work while I was there. And then there was an opening for an innovation position in the legal department. And one of the guys that was in claims had gone over to head up that organization. It's called Legal Operations. So I went to work for him over in legal, never having never worked really with lawyers before. And uh, I was there for about six years as director of innovation for corporate legal at Liberty Mutual for about six years. Years, five and a half, and did a variety of projects there. Uh, worked on bringing in a lot of different cutting edge tools, a lot of them having to do with artificial intelligence. I did a lot of work to understand what the technological ecosystem 
was offering and whether or not that would be a good fit for us. And additionally, I was trying to turn heads on innovation and opening everyone up to new ideas. That's, that's where I met you, Douglas, is when I was doing that job. And about four months ago, I left Liberty Mutual uh, happily, uh, not happy to leave necessarily. It was a bittersweet departure. Liberty had been a great home for me, but I was offered a, a job at a company called uh, KP Labs. KP Labs is a legal technology consulting firm. We do everything around legal technology strategy, design, use case identification, brainstorming, engineering, implementation, communication, metrics, you name it. We can run the whole the whole thing. It was essentially the, the unit that I came from at Liberty Mutual was, is KP Labs, but KP Labs does it for multiple corporate legal departments around the country. So that's where I sit now. That's what I'm doing today. I'm, I'm I'm at a, I went from about 30,000 people down to about 30 people, and now I'm uh, the director of digital transformation strategy. <laughs> and we, we focus on two main areas. We focus on workflow automation and, and contract intelligence. And we try to help out a variety of Fortune 100 legal departments figure out those technologies and how best to use them. And that's still focused in the legal operations territory. Is that right? Yeah. So I went from legal operations to essentially working for like our, our clients generally are, are legal operations groups within those corporate legal departments. And so the folks that haven't heard of legal operations, what's the quick like definition? Sure. Legal ops or legal operations is usually, it can vary a little bit from department to department, but is, is usually everything but the practice of law. So it's all of the things that need to happen in the law department in order to facilitate the lawyers being able to practice law. So that's technology, that could be knowledge management or uh, library services, that can be auditing and billing, that can be reporting metrics, project management, budget, finance, communications, you name it. All of those things tend to be housed in the legal operations. Which is like fascinating because I think, you know, there's, there might be a few listeners that are thinking to themselves like, why this legal department conversation on control the room? And I think the legal ops angle really explains it and it opens the door up for the potential for innovation in the space of the legal department. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you haven't had the pleasure, get four or five attorneys in a room to try to discuss the best way forward, and you're going to have differing opinions. And they tend to be strong personalities with strong opinions on how to do things. So controlling the room in those situations is a, is a key skill if you're going to work in legal ops. You need to be able to come in and speak with authority on what should happen. That can be intimidating. When I, when I first started in legal, I was very intimidated because you know lawyers are really bright people, but they're not necessarily trained in the, the, the areas that we, that we are familiar with around technology, project management, process, you name it. They're, they're trained to be lawyers. So uh, they often need help in those areas. And, and so you need to be able to, you know, help them out and, and tell them, tell them how to do different things sometimes. You know, this came up in our pre-show chat and there was this notion of the need to be decisive and to come in and specifically as a consultant, you know, you're in this position where you were hired for a specific need. And so coming in with the answers and, you know, setting that direction. So I was curious to hear how you also kind of walk that line between being the expert, but also keeping the beginner's mind set enough where you're still open to innovation and open to new ideas so that not everything's just a nail if you have a hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a great point. That's kind of our mandate here. So when we are hired to come in, we, we are being brought in because we have had success in the past and we are, you know, 
at least considered by the market to be good at our jobs. I mean, I can tell you that the people I work with here are excellent, really, really top-notch, fantastic people. It's the reason I left Liberty to come here because I feel like these guys are the varsity and I wanted to play with the varsity. But when we're brought into a situation, into a, a corporate legal department, we're being brought in to do a job. We need to do that job and we need to get it done. If we were waffling around and letting other people in the room sort of tell us how things should happen, well, then we aren't doing our job. Our job is to get it done. And you can have a lot of dissenting opinions. A lot of times uh, folks don't necessarily want a third party coming in and telling them you know, how things should, should go. Conversely, if you did hire a consultant, and they came in and they're like, oh, I don't know how to do this. That's not, that's not exactly what you're expecting from a consultant when you bring them in on a project. At the same time, you have to be an incredibly good listener because you're coming to this fresh. I mean, one of the other things we talked about, Douglas, is one of the challenges I've had since I've been here is I was at Liberty for 21 years. I, I knew where everything was. And if I didn't know, I knew somebody that knew where it was. I've gone mm. from that to knowing where nothing is. And now multiply that by every single one of my clients when I go in. Every client, I you know, I have multiple companies that I'm working with. They all have different cultures, different people, different org structures, different projects, different things they're trying to accomplish. And so we really pride ourselves as as, as somebody that can go into a company and put on the, the team's jersey, so to speak, right? And and act as the advocate for the person who hired us. In order to do that, you've got to know your your environment. So we listen a lot. We take a lot of notes. We ask a lot of questions and we very much try to keep an open mind. As you know, I'm sure uh, in your experience, you will get hired by a client sometimes and they will have a very set idea around what they think should happen. And once you get in there and you start learning a little bit more, you understand that maybe that solution isn't exactly the right fit for that problem. And uh, it can be a difficult conversation, but you know, if you can actually understand what their requirements are and then serve up the correct solution, you're going to be doing a better job for them. And that's something we really try to do is understand the true requirements of what we're being asked to do and then deliver that solution as opposed to maybe exactly what we were brought in to do. You know, often too, it's, it comes back to what you were saying a moment ago around, you know, the org structure and, you know, who is mandating what and where the requirements coming from and who's passionate about this thing versus that thing and mapping those things out can be quite informative. Yeah. You know, almost every organization, I don't even want to lay it at corporate, every organization has their own Game of Thrones going on to an extent. And there are agendas at play and different things that people want to have done. Or, and people have different opinions on how things should be done often. So trying to understand what all the push and pull is and why people are behaving the way they are is, is a key part of our job. So we're always trying to sort of get some of that inside information around those things as well. So what are some go-to strategies? Like say you've got a new client and you're about to start to engage with them. What are some approaches to better understand their perspective and what their true needs are versus maybe what they're asking for? Well, sometimes they're coming in and they think they have a pre-prescribed solution, but I really try to focus on where they're trying to get to. So one of the things I really try to do, especially with brand new clients, is have them describe the end state and how people are feeling about it, how they're feeling about it, how they're the constituents or the users or the, uh, the customers and whatever, whatever it is we're building are feeling about whatever has been built. Like, how do you want so-and-so feeling and, and why would they be feeling that way? And if you start to unpack some of those things, that can be a real you know, North Star for whatever we're building. It makes it a lot easier to 
pivot as you start to unpack things, when you can hold up some of those initial conversations, and it almost always comes out in the sort of, even some pre-sales conversations, you can always sort of hold up that North Star and and use that as a way to recommend potentially changing direction Mm. if that's needed. So that's a good tip. Yeah, that's really cool. And even if it's like was somehow, let's say, incorrect or misinterpreted when it was initially collected, at least it puts a stake in the ground that people can react to. Yes. Yeah. It makes things tangible. Mm. And so much of our job is turning the intangible into tangible and turning it into something that you can see and touch and feel. So getting those things down on paper and getting them out of the out of the ether is, is a big deal. And I try to write down even specific quotes that someone says in an initial interview. And again, holding those and sometimes we'll even slide those into presentations. It could be in an opening presentation or it could be at a closing presentation to sort of talk about what we intend to do. And here's the here's the quote that is the North Star. Or when we've delivered successfully on something, point to that quote and say, this is what we were asked to do and here's what we built. And we think that satisfies that. Using their language is such a smart pro move that I think so many people miss. It's, it's no different than when we're facilitating in the moment, in the session, and you know, we don't want to write something on the wall or capture something in the mural that's a translation of what someone said. That's a big no-no, right? Yeah, like, we don't want to like put it in our own words, paraphrase it, and make it all neat and tidy. If we do, we want to confirm it, right? But I think we do that in reports and proposals all the time, and it's questionable. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a time there there's a time for your opinion, but that may not be it. At first, you really have to be a you know, it's like it's you have to be a reporter and not a columnist. Mm. <laughs> uh, especially with the facts and, and, and what people say are, are in fact facts. Now you can then take that and, and then walk somebody through why you think, you know, what your opinion of what that means is, but you should start with that. And again, like you said, that's a, that makes it an anchor, right? Like something that you can build off of. That, that's the foundation you can build the rest of the house on. I'm mixing my metaphors left and right here, by the way. No, it's all good. It's like a, it's metaphor soup. It's, it's, uh, it's tasty. <laughs> so, Let's talk a little bit about some of the work we've done in the past. And, you know, something that came up in the pre-show chat was this this notion of making sure that these gatherings, events, or what have you were, you know, not just one way or one direction. And, and I think that was something that we really, like, when we collaborated on a, a couple of speaking opportunities, you know, this is really key to something or just how we wanted to show up on stage so that it wasn't just a presentation and that we got people on their feet doing things. So I'm just kind of curious how that shows up in your work today as far as focusing on making sure that information is not just flowing one way and that people are participating and included. Yeah. So Douglas, you know, I've learned quite a bit from you over the years. So thank you. One of the things you're referring to was the presentation we did at the Corporate Legal Operations Consortium in Las Vegas. It was like three years ago now, where we had about 80 people doing a, a very quick uh, design thinking session <laughs> in a in a hotel ballroom um, at the Bellagio, which was a ton of fun. And everybody, re- I think, really had a great time during that session. That becomes, to me, even more, more, m- more of an obvious need as more and more of those Industry events are becoming virtual and not in person. You know, like if you've got to sit, like, you know, panels are sometimes pretty boring to begin with. Now, if you've got to sit through a panel of speakers talking about legal technology for 45 minutes on a Zoom call, it's real easy to check out or check your email or check Slack or (laughs) work on a PowerPoint presentation or whatever it is that, you know, you've got to do. Now, if that same presentation is relying 
you know, exclusively on audience feedback. And there's a back and forth that's occurring between the presenters and the audience. And in order for that presentation to go forward, information has to flow from the crowd back to the, the presenters. That's that's a whole different story. And if I'm in the audience, I'm going to be paying a lot more attention to that second presentation. Everybody likes to feel included. And if you have something to do, you know, that, that just keeps those brains, keeps that brain moving and gets you thinking about whatever the subject is at hand. Those panelists that I was referring to may be, may be delivering fantastic content, but it might be hard to continue to focus on it when you've been sitting staring at a screen for, you know, eight hours a day for the last year and a half. Yeah, you know, it, it gets into retention too. And this is this is backed by, you know, learning science and studies of how the brain works, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's just lots of research to back this stuff and this notion of having people interleave, having people take a moment to integrate. So they're taking the act of doing something and contributing forces them to like confront the gaps that they have in their understanding of what's being said, right? Because if they're going to formulate a question or a response, they have to integrate it enough to where they can think about what that means for the work they do. Totally. I mean, it brings me back to my eighth grade science teacher, Mr. Stevens, which I, I wish he was listening to this, but I'm sure he's not. He would require us, we would have to read a chapter, you know, and then do the questions at the end of the chapter as you do in eighth grade. And it was biology, I believe. But he had an additional requirement, which we just hated it at the beginning of the year. But by the end of the year, I had totally understood why we had to do it. We had composition notebooks and we had to essentially summarize each page of the chapter that we read by something he, he called them reading notes, taking notes while you're reading. And then we had to turn in our books. I don't know if you ever read them or not, but each week we'd have to turn in our reading notes. And if they weren't done, we would get dinged for it. And I learned so much biology that year just from the simple practice of doing that. Like nobody, nobody failed tests that year. Everyone got great grades and it was because we were paying attention. Yeah, the journaling is a powerful thing. And, you know, that's the only thing we introduce into our facilitated experiences, you know, our training moments or our meeting moments, just to get people a moment to journal and doodle and, and integrate. Then we're going to we're going to be doing better than most. Yeah, I, I, I agree totally. It's, it's, it's a trick I still use today when I'm really needing to focus on something is get out something and write write stuff down as I'm reading and listening, what have you. And I think writing is quite a bit different than typing. Yeah, it is. It's way more free flow for me. I just, I have this problem where I have the most terrible handwriting in the world, so I don't mm. necessarily know what I'm writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had to type it up at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, which gives you another, another pass at it too, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Yeah. Another integration point. That's when I synthesize and organize, right? Because mm -hmm. when I'm writing, I just don't worry about it. I just capture it. Yeah. It's pretty liberating to not, in that moment, feel like I have to apply my own thinking. I just like make sure I capture the essence and then later I can think about what it means for me. I'm trying real hard to do that, like to kill my meetings five minutes before they end so that I can do five minutes of the sort of note editing mm. uh, so I can write a little more free flow, but also then tee it up so that somebody else can look at it and understand what the hell I was doing. So I'm trying to end my meetings five minutes early to sort of get that done these days. Nice. I commend that effort. It's an effort. It's not a success yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> Stand by. You know, another project we worked on 
was something you've been doing for a while and we collaborated last year because it was it was going virtual and so you were curious about having some conversations and exploring the possibilities of where it could go and how to design for a fully virtual version of this kind of design challenge that Liberty Mutual and Suffolk University were doing and so I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts now that some time's passed and and maybe how it's influencing the work you're doing today. Yeah, so the the Boston Legal Design Challenge was something we started was uh, Bob Taylor and I found that at Liberty Mutual about I guess it was four years ago. I think we did four of them. And in more context, the design challenge was essentially a hackathon for uh, law school students at Suffolk, but no real hacking. It was more around trying to come up with a, a great idea in a day. They worked on teams of three to five people. We would walk them through some design thinking exercises. Most law students haven't had a lot of design thinking exposure, although the ones at Suffolk are getting more and more of it. And so it was it was a competition slash educational event because we would talk to them about why we were doing certain things, and then we would give them an exercise, and they would be essentially using the exercises to refine and harden their ideas or to develop their ideas as the day went along. The day would end, culminate in a, a quick sort of five-minute pitch, and judges would hear the, the pitch and then decide on which one was the best idea, um, most fully formed and who presented the best, et cetera. We had multiple dimensions for winning and losing. It started as a fun, just like an enrichment thing. It turned into, by the time we left, a fully sponsored event um, with some serious prize money that was being handed out to the winners. And yeah, last year we went virtual, as did the rest of the world on all things like this. So glad we did. We, we were debating whether or not in the spring, you know, the spring of 2020 was a pretty dark time and we were trying to decide whether we should do it or whether we should cancel it. And then Bob and I both sort of looked at each other and said, we wouldn't really be innovation professionals if we didn't try to innovate and use this new constraint as as a way to uh, advance the design challenge. And I, I think we did. We went from, in the past, we'd had a Suffolk and one other school, Northeastern University from Boston, participate. We had seven schools last year, even a school from Canada. We had schools from Texas, Michigan, Las Vegas, Nevada, excuse me. It was UNLV, so the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And yeah, you assisted with helping, and by assisted, I mean told us what to do, uh, <laughs> to move our content from in-person to analog to digital, so to speak. And boy, it worked. It really went well. I was just so pleased by how well it went. It even it definitely improved some things. In-person events are are awesome, and we're all craving them. But this was a this was a truly, I thought, just a fantastic event. And it, and from what I understand, it's 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 going to happen again this year. Liberty's going to do it again with Suffolk. I can't wait to hear how that goes. I hope they uh, they continue to to carry that torch. It was such a fun event. Uh, I met. I've met a ton of law students along the way, some of which are now in the industry. I'm getting to sort of even work with some of them. So that that's really that's really kind of cool. What a what a great time that's been. As far as moving that into uh, into the work that I'm doing, you know, if you, if you've got to teach something like design thinking, it um, or and, and we actually we modified it as you know, Douglas, to contain a lot of the things that we learned from from Sprint. If you've got to teach that, you've got to know it, and and if you know it, then you start you start using that stuff in your daily work. So we build a lot of things here. We try to build them really really fast, but we don't want to build stuff that fails. So we do a ton of prototyping at KP Labs for our clients to just to make sure that what they're asking for will. will work and what can we learn what can we learn 
by by pushing things out in the world and then pivoting on it. And so I guess that's what I've I've taken from it. I mean, I took a lot of the the tactical things from it as well. How to how to host virtual meetings, how to host interactive virtual meetings, how to use technologies like Mural and. Oh God! What's the name? Of, I'm sorry. I always forget about it. What's the name of the amazing scheduling, the agenda? Oh, Session Lab. You and I spent a lot of time in Session Lab together. Session Lab is is like my secret favorite software. I think that that is just if you have anybody out there that's listening to this. If you have, I'm sure you guys already. You're like, yeah, Jeff. We 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 do this stuff all the time. But if you don't know Session Lab, you need to know Session Lab. Session Lab is amazing. Session Lab, and I learned this from you, Douglas. Like agendas more than anything drive almost everything that comes out out of an event right like understanding that agenda because an agenda holds so many things it's like multi-dimensional it's just, it's a list of things that occur and it's that's like it's just a list of things that occur but it's it's so much it's like all the content it's the it's the outline for all the content it's the beginnings and the ends it's the starts and finishes of everything and all of that can play into how many teams should we have how how long should they have to pitch their ideas how many judges do we need to have when do the judges need to be there like it drives everything that happens so sorry i'm rambling but session lab made that job so much easier yeah it's really fascinating how I mean, we, we had to drive this home in our facilitation training all the time because people classically get agendas mixed up with just list of topics they want to cover versus thinking about agendas from the perspective of what's the journey we want to take people on. It's so important. It's like if, and I always, I always started a later than I need to, and you always would force me to, you know, like that's how you would break ground is on the agenda. And if you're listening do your agenda first. Like literally, it's like a prototype for the event. The agenda is almost. That's right. Exactly. It's, that's exactly what it is. And even if you start off with something messy and gross and it's just all wrong, that's perfect. It's okay. It, it, you have now you're editing. You've gone from blank page to editing, and that just makes it gives you like a project plan to work on things. It just it it lines up everything. So agenda first. I love it. I love it. So I want to come back to something that you said earlier. And it's fascinating to me when people have some sense of service in their career early on or at some point in their career. And I think it it tends to give you a different lens on the economics of, you know, business. I just wanted to get your thoughts on, because this is the first time I knew that you started in as a CSR, you know, changing passwords and burning disks and stuff for Liberty Mutual. Does that sentiment resonate with you? This notion that that was formative as far as recognizing some of the dynamics at play and, and some of the struggles that you know, services and products create for users? I'll take it a step further, Douglas. Uh, I don't know if you know this too, but the 10 years prior to my life as a, I'm holding quotes, uh, as a professional at Liberty Mutual, I was a bartender and, and waiter, mm. which is also very much customer focused. And the type of work that I do where I'm really trying to get the user to smile, I mean, you gotta you got to be an advocate for that for that person, whoever that person is, whoever that user slash customer is. And uh, if you're waiting on tables or you're a customer service representative, then you are the advocate for that customer back to the organization that you represent and and vice versa. And then, you know, like that's what a lot of times what good software is doing anyway. So 
is being that advocate. It's an automated advocate. So I think it's, I mean, I'm incredibly biased. My mom taught hospitality at the University of New Hampshire as well. So, you know, very much had a hospitality management, not just being nice, but like, (laughs) uh, you know, like a hoteling school. So understanding, treating customers like they are a customer, like a paying customer and trying to deliver value to them is, you know, I mean, that's the whole game, right? Is like, is like we're 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 trading. You're giving us money. We're trading. We're giving you value for your money. Like that's the, that's the whole thing. And if if you if you can't see it from their eyes, you're gonna have a hard time understanding what's valuable to them. Yeah, and I think it's quite often in larger organizations, you know, there are people that are placed in roles where they're disconnected from that value chain. And I think that's part of the part of the challenge some organizations face. And that's where I think facilitation some of these conversations can help spread awareness for that. And likewise, very similarly, I think when companies get too focused on profits or too focused on, you know, some quarterly goals or shareholder value, they can lose sight of the value that's being distributed to employees. And likewise, we need to support them and we need to point these tools inward as well. And so I think, uh, I think it's just uh, all about service. Yeah, it, it is. Totally. And, you know, that's, that's the way we look at our, you know, currently where I'm at right now at KP Labs, we, we think about this a lot. We think about who our customers are going to be. We can't, we can't take every customer that wants to hire us. So we really have to think about where we're going to get the most value. And it's, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily the size of the customer that plays into it, but what we're looking for is deep, long relationships. So we're not looking for a quick score or a quarterly return, as you were saying, Douglas. We're looking for a way to ingratiate ourselves into that organization and vice versa and really develop a partnership over time by doing great work and delivering great service and value. Excellent. You know, I think what a great way to end today and something for facilitators to think about this notion of what is the value that's being exchanged amongst participants and how can we elevate that exchange in our dialogues and in our conversations. So I want to hand it over to you, Jeff, just to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought. Yeah. So I'll just key off of what you were saying there. You should always be thinking about how are you positioned to deliver unique value to the transaction you're working on? And I don't even necessarily mean like the organization you work for, but like you personally, because there's something special about you that's different than anybody else. So how do you leverage whatever it is that makes the you your fingerprint, your unique snowflakeness? How can you take that and you know, enhance the value of whatever you're working on because there's the requirements, there's what has to be done. But then how do you add even more value to that transaction? How do you bring a little extra, a few extra smiles to that meeting? How do you pull out a little more information from the folks in the room? How do you do whatever it is that you're you're trying to do, but how do you do that just a little bit better, a little bit differently where people will remember that? That's something you should be thinking about whatever kind of work you're doing. And if you can harness that, if you understand yourself enough to understand what you can then deliver, you're going to be successful, I think. Jeff, it's been a pleasure chatting. Thanks for joining me today. Douglas, always a good time talking to you, man. Thanks so much for having me on. Looking forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. If you want more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com